muistan sen vielä kuin eilisen päivän, kun sä läksin minä kulkemaan. Ja se päivä se nostatti pilvien häivän mun mamma vanhan maailmaan. Sinä poikani muista on maailma julma ja pistävä sen joka kulma. Ja kun heilutti mun vähän valkeaa niin se oli hiukan haikeaa. Hello everyone and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen, editor-at-large at SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Mr. Purdy in the upcoming film Mr. Peabody and Sherman, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? Very good, David. Uh, thanks for the shout-out for Mr. Purdy. I'm assuming that's the name. Yes. I'm assuming... I assume I... it's not publicly listed yet, but I no. assume... Because you said it was Mr. Purdy. I assume that that's the case. Mr. Peabody that... and Sherman is a... Uh, an upcoming animated film that's going to be released in 2014. Yeah, uh, they. I, I've done several of these animated films lately, and what they do is they they tell you that they are basing the character on you, and then they show you <laughs> the drawing of the character, and it makes you want to kill yourself. Uh, I don't think Mr. Purdy could have more double chins. I see. Uh, and and uh, the bald head, the tiny eyes. It, it was really depressing, but uh, was Mr. it depressing because it was accurate or because it was not accurate, Stephen? I think uh, the depressing part was the accuracy and the fact that this is the way the artists saw you. They didn't see the inner beauty of me, David. That's right. Fortunately, people on the uh, podcast uh, can hear that inner beauty because they yeah. can't see your face. They can't be distracted. <laughs> by uh, the sort of aesthetic pleasure of the face of Stephen Tobolowsky. Uh It's only the inner beauty at this point. That, that, the only, but, but one thing about Mr. Purdy, he's short. And when people meet me, I, I just came back from New Zealand, and they go, my God, mate, you're huge! You're huge! So, so people are surprised that I'm so tall. So uh, there, Mr. Purdy, and all you artists, <laughs> they make me tall. That was an excellent approximation of a New Zealand accent. By Thank the way. you. Just Thank you very that much. Out there. Thank you. Well, Stephen, speaking of the disconnect between reality and film, uh, you know, I was thinking the other day, I was watching um, The Shield, which is a great show uh, on television. I think it's on Netflix. And I, I was uh, realizing that uh, the main character, Vic Mackey, he never uh, says goodbye when he's talking on the phone. He just hangs up the phone. And I guess when you observe uh, on sitcoms or on TV shows, dramas, whatever, many people often do not have time for the pleasantries that they typically have in real life. They don't say, hello, who is this, and so on. Uh, they just hang up without saying goodbye. They don't even say hello. You know what I mean? Uh, and I guess it's to save time. What, what has been your experience with uh, talking on the phone uh, when you're acting? Well, with – oh, when you're acting – well, here's a bit of advice that someone once told me when you're acting on the phone is to count, depending on how long the phone conversation is or how long the question is, uh, to, to go, hello, how are you? And then you count one, two, three, and it looks like you're listening to the other person on the end of the line, which usually you're not. But when you're not acting, I have found that every joke, every story, every phone call home has something in common. And that is that they tend to focus on the exceptional, right? Boundaries. When time is short, you have to hit the high points, and those points usually live on the edge of an experience. 
So when last we left off, Anne and I traveled to Finland at the end of May of 1988, and everything about this trip existed uncomfortably on the brink. I had finally ended my relationship with Beth, my girlfriend of 16 years. I never expected such a thing would happen, so I was already on the edge of my imagination. The trip to England and Finland with Anne represented raising the uncertain flag of my independence. It represented the possible beginnings of the next stage of my life. It also tested the legal boundaries of justifiable homicide. We fought over everything, including the inevitable fight you have over fighting over everything. We were unaware that even though consciously we were on a holiday, subconsciously we were in a biology lab preparing for dissection. Beth had the blessing of being appreciated in her time. So she had fame, opportunity, lots of money. Whenever we had problems at home or on the road, the first option was to throw wads of money at it to see if it would go away. When you stayed at the Ritz-Carlton, it usually did. I was insensitive to the fact that Anne had the mindset of a single girl with no money. This trip was a terrible risk for her. We had some discussion about finances. As I mentioned in the past, it was one of many conversations that happened when I wasn't wearing any pants, so I retained nothing. I always assumed if anything would go wrong, I would just throw money at it. Anne did not assume that. Anne organized the trip with an eye on economy. She kept a record of every purchase and organized the receipts. We stayed at accommodations that pushed the boundaries of human habitability. We enjoyed a comfortable room at a dog farm. I got hungry whenever I heard barking. We stayed at romantic inns. In this case, romance meant you slept on a bed with a mattress as old as Charles Dickens' time. We slept on beds that were built when people didn't grow taller than five feet. We lived in B&Bs where one of the Bs wasn't a bathroom. The centerpiece of our month-long trip was a week in Finland a country whose very existence challenges the expectations of life on Earth. Everywhere we turned, we were faced with the improbable. It was June, also known as summer, also known as daytime. Always, the rare, never-ending daylight was a boon for the construction industry. They were always working jackhammers outside of our hotel room. Summer was a time of national celebration. There were water skiers jetting past our hotel at two in the morning. It was not unusual to have coffee at a beautiful sidewalk cafe at noon, only to remember you'd already been awake 15 hours and it was really midnight. Finland's unusual geographic location led to many innovations. Superior snow and trekking wear. Full-spectrum lights to ward off depression. And unusual alcoholic beverages made with anything that could grow on tundra. It was one of the first countries to pass laws that drivers would have to have their headlights on at all times of the day and night. In winter, of course, you had to be seen. And in summer, the drivers needed to be reminded that it might be night. There were too many accidents with motorists falling asleep behind the wheel in broad daylight. Summer or winter, Finland had the drunkest people I've seen anywhere. I don't know if it was the angle of the sun or the type of the liquor or just sheer will, but I saw teens, adults, lovers on dates, entire families staggering down the streets of Helsinki. 
There was something odd but heartwarming about seeing a couple passed out against a building holding hands. It's hard to evaluate any country objectively when you see a lot of people passed out on the city streets in broad daylight. New York can hide them in Central Park. Los Angeles, in preparation for some sort of zombie apocalypse, has perfected a nearly deserted downtown to camouflage them. Nighttime always seems to romanticize alcoholism. It's better for hiding the vomit. To be honest, it was good to see it coming. In Helsinki in the summer, you always had enough light to step over anything in the streets you needed to step over. Finland took a long look at the issue of drinking and came up with a unique solution. They capitalized on it. They had regularly scheduled drinking tours. Since the price of vodka was so high in Finland and was so cheap in Russia, which was just a stone's throw away, people would get on a bus, go over the border on a Friday, they would drink until they passed out, sleep it off, and come back on Sunday. It was like going to see the Grand Canyon. Anne and I spent days walking up and down the Esplanade and our nights at the theater. None of the plays were in English. We saw Oedipus Rex in Swedish, Day of Hope in Icelandic, and a restaging of Stein Vinga's brilliant Hamlet in Norwegian. The language barrier wasn't a problem. We knew all of the plays from our past. We had seen Stein's Hamlet in Oslo in its initial production the year before. It was brilliant. Traveling around the world to see it again didn't seem like an extravagance. It seemed like one of the reasons for being alive and having lots of frequent flyer miles. It also meant that Anne and I had Stein and Carrie Vinga as barroom companions afterwards. We would talk until dusk, which translated into about 3 a.m. Helsinki time. One night I was complaining about the Finnish language. Kari said it was very difficult, that it was not a Scandinavian language. It was more closely related to Hungarian. I said it looked less like a language and more like an eye chart. Kari said that Swedish was the second most popular language in Finland. She asked if we spoke Swedish. Anne looked up from her beer and said, a little. Pause. I said, you, you speak Swedish? A little. It's distantly related to Old English. You speak Old English, Stein said. Well, I don't really speak it. I learned it to read Beowulf. Stein looked at me and raised his eyebrows. Miss Anne is full of surprises. That's for sure, I said. Have you ever slept in a dog farm? Are you going to Russia, said Kari. What, I said? Yes, said Kari. You are so close. It's right across the border. You should go if you have the chance. Um, I heard they have drinking tours now that go over to Leningrad. Drinking tour, Stein said. They also have the Hermitage, one of the greatest museums in the world. But the drinking tour sounds good, too. Well, maybe we should go, I said. What do you think, baby? It sounds dangerous, said Anne. I protested, Anne, we come halfway around the world. It shouldn't be too hard just to go across the border and see a museum. And where do we get the tickets? And what papers do we need? Do we need to get some kind of permission? It is going to the Soviet Union. Anne, I said, I'm sure it's easy to go to a museum. They want tourism. It's American dollars. Kari shook her head. No, Anne is right. You need a special visa. 
but you can just go over to the Russian embassy and pick one up. It's down the street from the hotel. People do it all the time. Good, I said. I'll go over there tomorrow. The next morning, I asked the English speaker in the lobby where the Soviet embassy was. We wanted to go across the border and see some paintings. He drew a little map of downtown Helsinki and circled the embassy. I rounded up Anne and said, let's go get our visas. Maybe we could go to Leningrad tomorrow. We wandered over to the embassy. Now, there were two distinctive features. First of all, there were lots of soldiers in uniform going in and out of the building, and the doorway was not really a doorway. It was a thick, circular steel door. It was built more like a bank vault. I told Anne, let me do all the talking. We went inside and waited in line. A severe-looking soldier resembling Alec Guinness and Dr. Zhivago stood behind layers of bulletproof glass. When I made it to the front, he asked me what my business was. I smiled broadly, showing I meant no harm, and said, Hello, (laughs) my name is Stephen Tobolowsky. I'm an actor. Uh, I'm here for a week with my girlfriend, and we thought it would be nice to go across the border and visit Leningrad. I heard it's a lovely city, and we'd like to see the Hermitage. The soldier stared at me as if he didn't understand what I said. I repeated slowly for clarification. I also heard you have drinking tours. The soldier continued to stare at me. We can go over on the drinking tour bus and then get off of the bus and go over to the museum instead. The soldier said, I need your passport and your wife's. I handed him my passport. Uh, By the way, she's not my wife. He just stared at me. She's my girlfriend. He continued to stare at me. Anyway, here's her passport. I handed it over. The soldier disappeared. Anne came up to me in distress. What did you do? You gave him our passports. I had to, baby. I had to. Well, what if he never gives them back? How are we going to get home? Once again, it seemed like Anne was looking at the worst-case scenario. Why would he keep our passports? We're tourists. We waited for 20 minutes. Eventually, the soldier returned with our passports. He handed them back to me. I asked, so do we get the visas? Not today, he said. Come back tomorrow. Anne and I left the embassy. We started strolling down the boulevard. The wind picked up and some clouds covered the ever-present sun, and we got a brief taste of Finland without heat. It was severe. Anne zipped up a rain jacket. We headed back to the hotel. We jaywalked across the street. I looked back at the embassy to make sure I could find it again tomorrow. Several other pedestrians were running across with us. There were a couple of businessmen and a man with red hair wearing an Irish cap and a beat-up leather jacket. I saw a bookstore a few doors down. I said, oh, wait a second, Annie. Let me see if they have any maps of Leningrad. We scurried over to the magazine stand. Anne was happily looking at Finnish versions of American magazines. I tried to find where they kept the maps. I asked inside. The clerk didn't understand English. I gave up and went back to look for myself. Anne was busy looking at Finnish fashions. She asked, any luck? I said, not really, I said. No sprechetsi English. I was ready to move on, but something caught my attention. There was a man at the end of the magazine stand thumbing through the daily papers. It was the red-headed man in the Irish cap. But what caught my attention wasn't his hair. 
it was the way he was looking at the newspaper. He was turning through the pages like an extra in a movie. He had that concentrated look on his face, but he wasn't really looking at anything. It was odd. I took Annie by the arm and said, I, uh, I think I may have left my scarf at the embassy. Let's run back and see if they're still open. Anne looked at me strangely, but followed me back across the street. I don't think you had a scarf, she said. You're right, you're right, I didn't. We headed for the embassy. The vault door was closed. I guess they were busy with a nuclear warfare drill. Anne said, why are we here? I said, I just wanted to cross the street, honey. What? I don't understand. Anne was justifiably puzzled. That's when I saw him. The man with the Irish cap was on our side of the street now. He was sitting on a bench, lighting a cigarette, reading his newspaper. I started to get clammy. Anne, honey, let's head back. I'm getting cold. We headed back down across the sidewalk. I passed my new friend. He never looked up at us. We crossed the street. I kept an eye out as we walked. No sign of him or his Irish cap. I began to relax. We resumed a more leisurely pace, better suited for tourists. How about one cappuccino for the road, I said. Always, said Annie. We hung a ride into a coffee shop with yummy pastries in the window. We went inside and ordered. Out the front window, I saw the shadow of a man sit down at a table and open a newspaper. I wandered up to the bar and ordered a pastry, picked up the plate and headed back to Anne. En route, I took a quick look out the window. Yeah, it was the man with the red hair without its cap. I sat back down. I thought you might enjoy a pastry. Anne smiled and picked it up with a fork. Do you have the receipt? Anne said. I tossed it over to her. There you go. Uh, I have to go to the bathroom. I'll be back in a second. I headed for the toilets and saw a back door to the restaurant. It was open to crack, and I saw that it led to another street. I came back to the table. Uh, Annie, I have bad news. Listen to me, but don't look concerned. Anne looked concerned. I think we're being followed by a Russian spy. Anne looked more concerned. Why do you think that? A lifetime of watching James Bond movies, I said. Anne was not amused. Why don't you tell me what's going on? Okay, okay, listen. There's a man out front with red hair. He's followed us from the embassy. Really? Pretty sure. Why? Maybe they follow all potential tourists. I don't know. I don't want this guy finding out where we're staying. Anne looked ill. I know, I know. It's awful. Listen, there's a back door to this place. Pass the toilets. Pretend you're going to the potty. Go out that door. Go to the hotel, but stay off of the main street. I'll pay the check and head out in a couple minutes. I'll meet you back at the room. Do you think we can fool him? Anne said. Positive. He doesn't know we're on to him. He doesn't know there's a back door. And he doesn't know we're actors. We've read this script before. Anne calmly left the table. I got up and ordered another coffee at the counter, wandered back to the table, pulled out my chair. But then instead of sitting down, I headed for the back door. As for the check, I relied on something I learned from my former life. I threw money at it. 
I left the restaurant and began running down a side street. Up ahead, I saw Anne running. I caught up with her. We took off together. There was something undeniably romantic about running for our lives in a strange country. We got back to the hotel. The English speaker asked if we found the embassy all right. I told him about the encounter with the spy. He was horrified. I told him you couldn't trust people who had a bank vault for a front door. He asked me what I was talking about. I said, the embassy. The embassy has a bank vault for a front door. No, it doesn't, he says. He thought a little bit in Finnish and then said carefully in English, uh, which embassy did you go to? I went to the embassy you told me to go to, the one on the map. I showed him the map he drew. He shook his head. No, 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 no. You went to the other embassy. What other embassy, I said. The Soviets have two embassies, one for tourists, one for military personnel. You went to the wrong one. I went to the wrong one? Yes, the one for the drinking tours is across the street. Well, thanks for the heads up on that. So would you like to try to get a visa tomorrow? I think not, I said. We'll probably just stay and enjoy Finland. There's so much to see here. The English speaker smiled. Yes, there is. It's such a beautiful country. Hey, I'll draw you a map. You could write a very interesting college paper comparing the three plays we saw at the Scandinavian Theater Festival, Oedipus Rex, Hamlet, and Day of Hope. These plays represent the same existential question asked at three critical times in Western civilization. The question, is anybody out there? It is the primary argument atheists always go to. How can there be divine guidance when there appears to be no guidance at all? The answer I would offer is that divine guidance is different than a personal life insurance policy. We have free will. We're able to make a mess of things if we so choose. There have been many people over the century that had the job of listening for divine guidance. These people were often executed. In Sophocles' day, the message came from priests and playwrights. Theater was respected as holy. In Shakespeare's time, there was a political religious construct that supported civilization. Theater was reduced to entertainment. In the modern era, we have very few voices able to answer the big questions. The tipping point came with the introduction of the television show Family Feud. Before the feud, game shows were interested in the right answer. Afterwards, we settled for the popular answer. Since wisdom has never been popular, theater and religion started circling the drain. The Scandinavian Theater Festival showed me the reason why theater will never be down for the count. It is still the forum that asks the essential question, Why are we so lonely? 
Loneliness is the basis of every story that has endured, from Lysistrata to Lassie Come Home. As an actor would say, it is our motivation. Almost every decision we make individually or as a society is an attempt to lessen the pain of cosmic loneliness. When we feel connected, we are at peace. When we don't, we date. The only way I can describe the end of my relationship with Beth was the eventual decline of affection. Call it entropy, call it distraction. We moved further and further away from each other until we were more at home with our loneliness than we were with each other. It taught me many lessons. There are dangers to routine. It's easy to mistake habit with happiness. It echoed the acting advice given to me by my teacher, the late and great Ed K. Martin. Comfort is the enemy of the artist. Using Ed's words as a guide, I dedicated myself to the task of making sure that from now on, I would be as uncomfortable as possible. That's one reason why I was receptive to Anne's innovative trip planning. I was happy to embrace the challenge of Finland. It was why I was willing to take a field trip outside the relative safety of Helsinki. Anne told me that Finland was home of the world-famous Italia Glass Company. Like many world-famous things, Italia Glass never appeared on my radar, but I was happy to know that we were so close. Anne suggested we take a trip to the factory. Maybe they would give us a tour. Anne's maps indicated the journey should be simple. We go to the train station. We get on a certain train. We get off at the first stop. Hey, what could possibly go wrong? For insurance... I would also get instructions from the English speaker in the lobby. He told me Anne was correct. The trip to the factory was simple. It was a matter of getting on the right train and getting off at the first stop. As a person who has felt the sting of catastrophe by not asking the simple questions, I asked the simple question. Um, How do we know what the right train is? The English speaker said it was easy. We just need to take the train headed for Tempera and not the one headed for La Parata. Someone at the station would help. Italia is just one stop away, about a 30-minute train ride. Armed with that information, I felt confident we wouldn't have a problem. We made it to the train station. We found what I ascertained was the correct train. We didn't even have to wait long. We jumped on board. We looked out at the window with excitement as we watched the gorgeous Finnish countryside rushing by. I stood up at the 20-minute mark to give myself 10 minutes to get mentally prepared for the dismount. I asked a man standing next to me if Italia was the next stop. He smiled and nodded in Finnish. The Italia stop was coming up. The train slowed down. This is it, Annie, I said. Annie stood up, thrilled that we made it in one piece. We stopped at Italia. But the train doors didn't open. What's going on, Anne said. I have no idea. I pushed on the doors. Nothing. How do we get off, Anne said. I don't know. I've never been on this train. I knocked on the train door. Hello? Hello? Open? Please open? Nothing. All of the Finnish commuters watched us with a sort of dispassionate curiosity. Anne grabbed the door handles and started screaming, Open up, damn it! 
The train whistle blew. I could feel the hydraulic brake disengaged. The train started to move again. Anne whirled around. She had a wild Anglo-Saxon look in her eye. We're lost, she said. We're lost. The train is moving. We're gone. I tried to calm her down. Baby, we'll just get off at the next stop. Anne almost exploded. If we can't get off at this stop, how are we going to get off at the next stop? She had a point. She rubbed salt in the wound. Do you know where we are? I don't. Do you speak Finnish? I don't. I have no idea where we're going to end up. Do you? I couldn't argue with that logic. Even if I could, I wasn't about to. A bearded Finn sitting near us stood up and said, Can I be of service? Yes, yes, you could be of service. Uh, How do we get off of the train? He chuckled. Is that all? Yes, yeah, that'll do it, I said. He pointed to a sign near the door. There are the instructions. I looked at a mess of pictures and consonants with umlauts. I can't read that, I said. The man smiled and said, let me help you. It says to open the train door, you push this. He pointed to a green plastic button. We pushed the green button? That's it. Well, thank you. I went over to Anne, who was biting her thumb. Baby, we just pushed the button. What are you suggesting, she said. I think we have to push the button. I don't know where we're going to be. I know, I know. But one thing is for sure, the longer we stay on this train, the farther we're going to be from Helsinki and the closer we're going to be to the North Pole. We have to get off. My bearded friend stuck his head in. There's no problem. The next town has a bus station. You get a bus back to Helsinki. There you go, Annie. We'll just take the bus. Anne didn't look at me. She stared straight ahead. It appeared she was entering a vegetative state made of equal parts of depression and murder. I thanked my new friend and asked, Will we be able to find the bus? The man laughed. Of course. It's right at the train station. I looked at the passing landscape of Finland. We rocketed north on the express. Now we were past the occupied zone. We were moving through the wild landscape of forests and lakes. The train started to slow. I grabbed Annie by the hand. I gave her a squeeze for encouragement. I said, we'll get a bus ticket and we'll be on our way back to Helsinki. Don't worry. No comment from Anne. I pushed the green button. I waved at my bearded Finnish companion. He waved back and pointed straight ahead. The doors closed. The train left. We walked to the end of the little station. No bus depot. Nothing. Anne looked at me. It was a stunning example of how much can be conveyed with just a glance. A good lesson for actors. It's got to be around here, I said. Unless he didn't know what he was talking about, or he was thinking of another stop. How long did you know him? He wasn't wrong, Anne, I said. He had a beard. We walked out of the station. Nothing around us but trees and an unpaved road. Okay. I bet you the bus station is somewhere on this road. Anne looked at me without comment. I figure my friend couldn't have been too wrong. Right at the station is what he said. In Finnish, that probably means close. I tried to make a stamp judgment as to which direction we should walk. I looked to my right and saw movement in the woods. 
It was a girl with her hair in braids and a dress right out of National Geographic carrying a wooden yoke with milk buckets on each end. I decided to walk the other way. We walked down a road in the direction of Italia. I saw a concrete building up ahead with a sign above it that had one gigantic word on it. I bet you that's the bus stop, I said. Why, queried Anne. There are no goats near the building. We walked over. I saw a uniformed woman standing behind a glass window. It was the bus stop. See, Annie, we're fine. Anne took over. She stepped up to the window and said, Hello. We're lost. We need to go to Helsinki. We were trying to go to the Italia glass factory, but the train wouldn't stop. Well, it stopped, but we couldn't open the door. We tried to open the door. We pounded on it. The woman behind the counter's eyes were getting bigger and bigger as Anne's explanation continued. Anne broke into tears. Why don't you people have trains where the doors open? I did everything I could think of, but the doors wouldn't open. The ticket lady was terrified. Anne turned to me. She doesn't understand me. She doesn't understand. I stepped up to the window with a wad of finished money and said, two tickets, Helsinki. The woman was relieved. She held up two fingers. I nodded. Yes, we had our tickets. In 10 minutes, the bus came by and we jumped on board. We settled in for the long road back for civilization. But then I saw a road sign up ahead. It said Italia. I asked the bus driver, "Uh, speak English? He smiled and gestured a little. I said, can we get off at Italia? He nodded. You can get off anywhere you like. I went back to our seats. Anne, what do you say if we get off at Italia? See if we could take the tour. Anne, who was feeling revived, nodded yes. We gave it a try. We jumped off at the Italia stop, and we looked for landmarks like Davy Crockett in the woods of Tennessee. We walked towards smokestacks. We arrived at the factory and introduced ourselves at the front desk. I told the tale of our travails. The girl apologized. They had already given their last tour, but she called upstairs to see if someone could show us around. You can't beat Finnish hospitality. One of the executives came down and took us on a private tour of the factory. It was one of those tangible things that a new relationship brings into your life. Something unique and beautiful you never knew existed. Italia glass is an exquisite marriage of design and function. We saw the piles of sand, the furnaces, the dyes, the cooling rooms. We saw earth become art. We bought what we could at the factory and shipped it home. For the last 25 years, those classes have given me so much joy. There's a little bit of that train ride in each toast we've taken over the years. We jumped on the next bus headed for Helsinki. We were getting cocky, so we jumped off again at a little town called Hatula. We were told there was a very old church outside the town we had to see. It's called the Holy Cross Church, built when Columbus was heading for America. The church was a popular pilgrimage site in the Middle Ages. It's unique for a couple of reasons. First, it's made of brick instead of stone, so it looks like a house in North Dallas. But what is truly remarkable 
are the frescoes inside. These paintings tell the stories from the Bible, but these are not images we're used to seeing. The depiction of Adam and Eve and the fall of man are wild and passionate. They're filled with violence and evil. Equally startling were the visions of grace. The power of heaven was on these walls. These paintings were trying to provide an answer for the questions of existential loneliness the playwrights in Helsinki were wrestling with. That night over beers, Stein asked about our day. I was about to tell him our tale of woe when I stopped. I smiled mid-sip. I realized Anne and I had not only stumbled upon a church, but the meaning of the frescoes on its walls. That even the most unfortunate trip could have a happy conclusion. Dude.